Well, one of the things we talk a lot about around this church is the tension, and I don't mean a difficult tension, but sort of like think of an engineering type tension between God's sovereignty on the one hand, what God does, and man's responsibility on the other side. The last time we were together, we talked about the, the privileges true Christians have, and we saw some wonderful things that we have. We'll be coming back to them over and over again tonight, but tonight's message, the title is The Responsibilities That True Christians Have. So we go, the, we don't just get privileges, there's also responsibilities that come along with those privileges. Last time, uh, Peter told us that the Lord has given followers of Jesus, and if you're with us tonight, you're not a follower of Jesus, welcome, so glad that you're listening. Please keep listening and keep listening, that's the way you're going to learn things, and a lot of times you hear stuff and you're like, well, I didn't know that's what Christians believed, or I didn't know that was in the Bible. And, and so last time, Peter told us that the Lord has given followers of Jesus the power to say no to the sinful things of the world and to live godly lives for Jesus. This week, so we have that power, this week he's going to continue the discussion by telling us that we need to use the power that we have to live godly lives for the glory of God and for the world to see. Now, uh, let me ask you a simple, simple question. Are you a follower of Jesus? That, that's a very, very simple question. Uh, but what I think most followers of Jesus don't have a sense of is a calling from God upon their life. And we tend to think of calling as maybe something specific we do instead of sometimes thinking of it in terms of who we are and then what we do is an expression of who we are. Now, to me, over the years, and you know, as a little kid, I was, grew up in the church and uh, you know, I was an, I was an I, went to religious school and I was an altar boy. And, and I think a lot of people who would say that they're Christians or followers of Jesus, in a lot of ways, feel overshadowed and therefore discouraged by uh, super Christians, if you will, and the clergy. So uh, can you keep a secret? Just don't tell anybody, okay? Yeah, I wanted to keep a secret. Uh, I find that most people who act like super hyper-Christians, you got to check a little more carefully under the hood. It's like something's not exactly right. And I also find that uh, the clergy is not all it's cracked up to be. Now, I'm part of the clergy, so maybe I drew the, put, you know, lowered the average or something like that when I came on board. But I think a lot of times we're intimidated by such people, and we shouldn't be, because the Lord Jesus wants every one of you who is a follower, and you can become one tonight by simply putting your trust in him, he wants all of you to sense his calling and then live lives that are empowered by that calling. And the calling, he's going to talk about that throughout his letter, but it's a lot simpler than we really make it out to be. I think sometimes we overcomplicate things instead of just living the life that God has for us. You know, the Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul said, just lead a quiet and simple life. It's not, don't, you don't have to be some, you know, big shot in the kingdom of God, uh, or so people like to act the way they are here on earth. And it, there's, it's a simple life that God calls us to live, and then he empowers us to live it. So I want to read just the three verses we're going to cover tonight, and then we'll unpack them. Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. But also for this very reason. Well, for what reason? For what we covered last time in verses 3 and 4. We will mention them periodically tonight. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence. Some of your versions say, make every effort. And here's our responsibility. Because of what we learned last time, here's our responsibility. Add to your faith. That tells us that faith is an active process. We are not inactive. We are not spectators to our own faith. 
We are people who are actively involved in our faith. Add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. So, the calling that God puts on our life is what we just read. It's not exclusive. It's not an exhaustive list. But the calling that God puts on all of our lives as followers of Jesus, we just read in verses 5 through 7. Now that is dependent on, and we're going to learn a lot about this tonight, it's dependent upon the grace of God in verse 3 and 4 that we discussed last time. That's, that is that the Lord, and we discussed last time, that the Lord has given to us all that we need to live the Christian life. Once you believe, God has given it to us all that we need. So this is what we might call classic Bible. The Lord gives to us, which means that the Lord empowers us, the Lord enables us to live the life he calls us to live all by his grace and through his power. Now, there's some debate on this list. Uh, does one trait build upon another? I would say definitely maybe. <laughs> I mean, I, don't, I can't say I know for sure, but it does seem to be, me to be more of a package deal. You would say, well, why would you say that? Well, if one builds upon another... You could read this list and people would say, like, people would come up to you and go, dude, you're totally out of control. You're a Christian and you're not self-controlled ever, man. You're not kind. What, what, what's up with you? And you would go, well, I lack knowledge. And until I master knowledge, I can't move on to those other steps. So to me, that seems a little foolish to say that I have to have one before I move on to the other. I don't think that's what the Lord has in mind. I could be easily convinced, though, that he begins, Peter begins with faith and uh, ending with love, that that is significant. They, they, are, they are bookends. And it's interesting that, that Peter is old now. He, he's writing near the end of his life. He walked with Jesus since he was probably about 20 years old. And, and now he's you know, some 30, 35 years older than he was before. And you know, they're, they're really persecuting the apostles. He doesn't have long. And it's interesting the way he began with faith and made a lot of mistakes along the way, but has been learning these traits and is now teaching them to the people that he's writing to who were, as we said in the beginning, who are experiencing some problems within the church. So these things are probably not being exhibited within the church or the churches that he is writing to. So faith is the beginning of the Christian life. What is faith? You put your trust in Jesus Christ. And love is what? Love is the goal. As God's children, we become God's children by grace through faith, then the goal is love. In other words, we are living out and becoming what we already are in God's eyes. So verse 5 begins, for this very reason. Uh, because of the precious gift uh, that God has given to us in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, there needs to be a response by us. Now, the response a lot of times in a contemporary Christian culture is, well, I have to see how I feel led. That is not what Peter's talking about here at all. What he is saying is this is how God wants all followers of Jesus uh, to respond to his grace and love. Now, this is not what we call legalism. Legalism is earning our way to heaven. So sometimes, anytime somebody said, hey, uh, you know, we need you to do this. So you're like, that's legalism. And we're like, we didn't, you know, somebody say, hey, can you be here at 10 o'clock on Sunday if you want to help out? And they go, that's legalism. And it's like, 
We're not saying that's how you get to heaven. We're saying that's what time you need to be here if you want to help like you said you wanted to. So that's not legalism at all. Any t- some people, anytime you put any kind of guidelines on them, they go, oh, that's legalism. Or they go, oh, that's, that's not in the Bible. And, and let me ask you a question. Let's, if you say you're a parent out there and your kids are little and you make the bed, can they jump on the bed? It's not in the Bible. <laughs> well, it comes under obey your mother and father. Yes, but there's a lot of specific things that are, that are not in the Bible in, in, in mention, but are there in principle. And so it's not legalism, how we respond to God's grace and his love. It's not earning our way to heaven. It's not moralism. It's not thinking, well, I have to be a good, upstanding, moral person. And there's nothing wrong with that, trust me. But it is simply, God is saying, these are the ways, and I'm going to help you live these ways, that you respond to God's work in you through the person and work of Jesus Christ. When we talk about the work of Jesus Christ, we talk about God becoming a man, walking on earth, living a perfect life, dying on the cross, rising from the dead, ascending into heaven. That's the work of Jesus Christ. So this is what we really need to remember tonight. This is so important. This will change the way you think about Christianity the grace of God, God giving us what we don't deserve, the grace of God comes before the commands of God. Very important to understand that when you're reading your Bible. That will dramatically change the way you read the Bible. Look for the grace of God. We'll unpack this more as we go along. Look for the grace of God before the commands of God. Look for the work of Jesus before the work of a follower of Jesus. Yet, when we see what God has done for us, we will see his commands, and what is required of us is grace-motivated effort. The effort of the, 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 the grace of God motivates us to live for God. Uh, Louis Burkhoff, the old uh, Dutch theologian, said this about sanctification or the process of becoming more like Jesus. He said, it is a work of God in which believers cooperate. So God is doing a work in us and we cooperate. Peter is crystal clear that spiritual growth in the Christian life is not something to take lightly. It's not like, well, it's, it's kind of optional, you know, it, it, it really, it's not that important. No, it's very important. Faith demands it. The cross and resurrection demands spiritual growth in all of us. And it's something that the Lord wants all of his children to give ourselves to every day of our lives and... <laughs> Two things. One, we're not perfect at it, so that we have to understand. A lot of times we're catching ourselves, oh, I gotta stop this. But and another thing is if you're new to the scripture or you're new to watching us here online, I realize that this may be new to you. You may thought, I live for God, and God the if I am a good person, God accepts me. You have it backwards. You have the teaching of Jesus and the apostles throughout the entirety of the New Testament backwards. You don't live for God and then hope he accepts you. God accepts you by grace through faith. You put your trust in Jesus and he accepts you and then that enables you and empowers you and gives you the desire to live for him. That doesn't mean there aren't good people in this world, decent people, what I mean. It doesn't mean that, but this is the Christian life. And so uh, it seems to me that, that Peter is pleading with the people he is writing to, pleading with us here, that we are not to lead a passive Christian life. The Christian life is going to cost you. There's no, there's no doubt about it. It is a costly participation. 
if you want to just, you know, you think, well, I go to church, you know, a couple Sundays a month. I go in, I go out, and that's, I, that's my duty. God's pretty happy with that. That's not right. That's not right at all. God wants us to lead a life that is going to cost us something. It costs Jesus his very life, and it's going to cost us some things. But we're not doing it to get God's approval, but we're doing it because of, by, by grace, through faith, we already have God's approval. And when this is done correctly, people will see the work of God in us as we are motivated by grace, we build on our faith, with God's help. So let's read verse 5 again. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. Now, some of your versions say goodness. To virtue or goodness, knowledge. So here he starts with um, two or three of the seven or eight attributes that grow out of faith in Jesus Christ. I'll, I think it's more seven. I think faith is really the beginning. Some people think faith is one of the attributes. Um, but he says that you, you add to your faith. You have faith. And he says, now I want you to add to it. With God's help, I want you to add virtue or goodness. You can use the words interchangeably. And I want you to earn knowledge. Now these things... These two things, virtue, goodness, and knowledge, are things that we see in the Gospels in the life of Jesus. That's why we say we talk about sanctification, being more like Jesus or becoming more like Jesus. But notice where they come from. They grow out of faith. They grow out of faith. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus or if you are a follower of Jesus, this faith refers to personal faith and trust in Jesus Christ and trust because trusting Jesus changes the way we live. It just does. It just does. It changes the way that we live. Maybe it's easier for some of us to think of Faith as our starting point, um, but it's also more than our starting point. Faith is also our foundation. And if you don't have a good foundation in a building, what happens? It crumbles. When the earthquake comes or when the difficulty comes or the storm comes, it crumbles. So think of faith as, as our foundation that keeps us really from crumbling. Peter then says, add to the foundation virtue or goodness. What, what is that? We might say, and again, you'll see all of these things in the life of Jesus. We might say that virtue or goodness is moral excellence. Now, the word excellence is common in the ancient world and in our world as well, and it should be in our faith as well. Um, why? Now, I think most followers of Jesus would say that excellence is a reflection of our faith. And, and that is true, but also understand this, and really understand this in the workplace. Your desire to work for excellence is a reflection of Jesus to the world. And, and you say, well, you're a pastor. What's the big deal about that? I, I, I remember my days in the working world where I just felt very, very much convicted that, or, you know, just convinced that, that we had to be a company that, that really honored God in the way we went about our business. The reality is that this moral excellence uh, this, this way of living like Jesus, which we often refer to as Christ-likeness, it actually requires something. You say, what does it require? It's only possible, it's, it's only received through a personal and continuous 
encounter with Jesus. Because if you don't have a personal, continuous encounter with Jesus, excellence just turns into just the way we do things. And we're just doing them just for the sake of you know, being excellent, maybe being a perfectionist or something like that. Uh, one of the wonderful things about being a Christian is you don't have to be perfect because Jesus was perfect in your place. But, but we, if we are personally connected to Jesus, that will be the fuel behind grace-motivated excellence. Um, because what happens to us when we become followers of Jesus in this idea of moral excellence is what we refer to as sinful, fleshly habits. And so, in other words, sort of just what we want to do. It, it's replaced with that which is morally good. And, and that's different than a lot of people think. Next is knowledge. Next is knowledge. Now, here's a mistake that we can't make. It's not just Bible knowledge. Now, Bible knowledge is very important. That's part of the reason why we gather here. That's part of the reason why you're watching right now, to learn more about the Bible. But, but Bible knowledge by itself, it doesn't, it doesn't have legs. You've got to put legs on it. And what are the legs? The legs are living out God's way and God's will as it is revealed to us in the Word of God, what we're learning about right now. We might think of knowledge as, as this way, practical wisdom. In other words, you begin to realize what is good and what is not. And you begin to realize, I want to gravitate towards the good as I gravitate away from the evil. Uh, in our times, the knowledge of Jesus Christ is essential. The relationship with Jesus Christ, our relationship with Jesus Christ is essential. Uh, to use some modern terminology, it is the vaccine. The relationship with Jesus is the vaccine against falling away from the faith. Now, we said on this past Sunday that the number of people falling away from the faith is huge. Now, there's a lot of different things We'll talk about in a few weeks when we get to Daniel chapter 3. Um, but, but one thing that really is obvious right now is not a lot of people are pursuing what we would call inherited faith. In other words, when you grew up in a faith, it used to be assumed that if you grew up you know, uh, Catholic, you would be Catholic. If you grew up Jewish, you would be Jewish. If you grew up Presbyterian, you'd be Presbyterian. That's pretty much gone to the wayside. And so I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm saying it's a fact. I mean, it doesn't do any good to, to, to say you have faith and, and have it be a phony faith. But a lot of people are falling away from the faith. And Peter would say part of the problem is people are not digging deeper into the knowledge of God himself. Faith is sort of a thing that they do versus faith being something that they are, the, the essence of, of who they are, the essence of their identity. Now, we can blame the culture all we want. And, you know, it, it, a lot of people like to do that. It's, it's an easy thing. But it seems to me that we are, this is just an opinion, we are seriously paying the price for dumbing down the messages in our churches. We're, we're being accused of things that, that we should never be accused of. Never be accused of. Let me give you one of mine that's just one of my pet peeves. When I hear people say that Christians don't believe in science, I just sit there and, I, and I'll, I'll challenge that in people and I'll say, just give me this for one second. Look at the world. Maybe you don't believe in God, but just can I get you to believe in God for five seconds, just for five seconds? Tell me what kind of a scientist is he? He is he's an amazing scientist. The food chain, the tilt of the planet, the atmosphere. Of course, we, of 
course we believe in, in science. We're, 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 we believe that God is the creator of, of science. You know, other things like people say, well, you know, you don't believe in like going to the doctor and stuff like that. We believe as Christians that we are to seek the betterment of the world. And of course we want to we heal people. We want to see people flourish. And so sometimes people don't like to think of those things. And, and that's, that's good practical wisdom. And, and when we, but when we dumb down the message, when it doesn't get deeper than just very surfacey level, most people say if you teach your congregation at ninth grade level, then that will be the best thing for them. Well, it's, that's not teaching people any kind of depth. People say, well, you know, sixth graders can't understand it. They actually can. They actually can. There's a couple of them sitting over there this, this week, and they were right on the edge of their seats, and they were, they were listening very carefully. I know my own kids, they, they would really listen very, very carefully. And so we, we don't want to dumb down the message. Uh, one Bible scholar put it this way. He said this, We pray, as Jesus did, Lead us not in tempt into temptation, but without virtue and not knowledge, we walk right into it. <laughs> and that's what it seems like a lot of people are doing. Without virtue, without goodness, without knowledge of God and a knowledge of God, who God is and an identity in God, we're walking right into temptation. Verse 6 says, To knowledge, self-control. To self-control, perseverance, some of your versions say endurance, to perseverance, godliness. Let's start with self-control. Self-control was a, an important concept of ethics in the ancient world. And actually, you know where you find it very, very um, common today is in the world of uh, personal discipline and personal productivity thinking. A lot of people talk about self-control. We might call it today in our thinking, uh, discipline and self-mastery. So if you read any books by productivity uh, gurus, they will preach things like morning rituals. They'll say that it's very important to have morning rituals. Get your day off to a good start. Don't you know, plan your day, the, the, how you're going to get out the door the night before so there's not a lot of thinking to do so you're not late. And scheduling, being, you know, taking care of your priorities. Stephen Covey says, put the big rocks in first, what's more important, and then fill it in with all the little stuff because if you put all, take care of all the little stuff first, you'll never, get, you'll never get to the big stuff. And that's all good. That's all good. But it's not what the Word of God means by self-control. By self-control, the Word of God is talking about God at work in us through the person and power of the Holy Spirit. Or can I call him God, the Holy Spirit? We, we are Trinitarians, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The three are one, the one are three. All three are God. So what is self-control? In the Bible, in the scripture, self-control is Holy Spirit-empowered self-restraint, which when we get to chapter 2, we'll see that the false teachers in the church had almost none of this, almost none of this. Uh, let's use our world as an example. We live in a hypersexed world, and... For a lot of people, uh, self-control would be the controlling of our passions. Lack of self-control would be our passions controlling us, which is really rampant in so many people. Uh, but self-controlled followers of Jesus, through knowing Jesus, willingly submit to him. He or she willingly says to Jesus, I am going to follow you in the way of Jesus. Now, this lack of self-control really explains many of the scandals in the church. I don't want to minimize them because 
Man, some of them are horrible, absolutely horrible. But, but knowing the Bible and walking with Jesus are not necessarily the same thing. They have to connect. I mean, we often say the guy who knows the Bible the best here on earth is probably the devil. And so knowing the Bible and walking in the way of Jesus, they have to connect. And so when people say, well, how could that person get up there and preach and, and live, be living that way? Well, it's simple because the knowledge of the Bible, the ability to draw a crowd, don't have, don't, doesn't have to do anything with being connected to Jesus. Now, once again, we can blame the culture. You can do that till the cows come home. I don't think it, you really, it holds much water with people who are not followers of Jesus. They're like, what are you blaming us for, the way you live? You don't blame us for it, and I can't blame them for that. But I can say this, the church's casual attitude towards sin has produced a lot of spiritual slackers in the church. We've been very, very casual towards sin. Why? Because we're not listening to what the apostles are teaching. We're telling people it's all about grace, and grace is limited by many people as just the forgiveness of sins. Oh, no, no, no. He's telling us here, all of these things will become part of your life and my life as the grace of God is active in us and as we cooperate with that grace of God. We don't work against it. In other words, to be self-controlled is a way to open up your life to joy and to spiritual growth. You become wise with your time and you love the way of Jesus. After self-control, Peter takes us to perseverance. Uh, some versions say patience. Many versions say endurance. What does that mean? Perseverance is to continue on in the faith. You don't give up. You persevere. You endure. You're patient with things that might not be going the way you want them to go. Very difficult for Americans. Very difficult for Americans. I mean, come on. Pick, pick, take out your phone. There's a pizza here in 20 minutes. I mean, it's just, it just it takes absolutely nothing. Such people have faith that is able to stand up under the pressures of life. They're not full of excuses. Why? Because they're full of faith. Such followers of Jesus, very important, are consistently in the faith. You know any people that are in and out of the faith? Maybe that's you. You're in the faith for a little while, and, and you're, then you're out for a little while, then you're in for a little while, then you're out for a little while. That is quite simply a lack of perseverance. And God wants to develop that in you. A lot of times you're in and out. People are in and out because their faith is based on emotions. It's based on feelings. But those who endure, I'm not saying they don't have emotions, I'm not saying they don't have feelings, but they don't give up. And here's an important thing to remember about perseverance. Perseverance does not deny hard times. Perseverance does not deny that life can be very difficult at times. Perseverance in our faith presses through the hard times in light of the grace of God, the promises of God, and the promise of eternity. But, but let's remember something very important. We do not persevere. We do not endure on our own. The Spirit of God is with us. Now, it's tough to do without regular Bible reading. 
because it's almost like the Spirit of God makes a deposit inside of us. And you may be like, well, I didn't really understand very much. Don't worry about it. Stay at it. Get some materials or ask us for some materials that can help you understand some of these things a little bit better. Keep coming to Bible study. Keep coming to church and you will begin to realize that you are learning a lot. A lot of times you don't know how much you know until you talk to somebody who knows nothing. And, and they're like, wow, I didn't realize I was talking to a Bible scholar. And you're sitting there like, what? Me? Bible scholar? I don't even, you know. I don't, even, I don't know that much, but compared to most people, you do. And so the Lord is with us. And when you persevere, this is how good God is. He not only helps you persevere, but he uses that as a sign to you that he is with you and that you truly are a child of God as we work hard with God's help to stay faithful. So those who persevere, trust in God. Those who persevere, rely on him. They believe, as we've been talking a lot about, his sovereignty, that he's in control of this world. He has authority over this world. And when we get to that place of perseverance, that we're trusting in God, this is what happens. Our faith, even grows in suffering. In fact, while we don't wish for suffering, that's silly, many of us would say that our faith grew tremendously in and through times of suffering more than times of comfort. So verse 6 closes out with godliness, 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 boy, we could, that's a word you could really just, just talk about that. We'll call it here, um, simply we'll call it devotion to God. A godly person is devoted to God. What does it mean to be devoted to God? It means you have an awareness of him as you go through life. Now, you might say to me, is that even possible? And my answer to that question is yes, but it's really helpful to live in an awareness of God as you go through life. It's really helpful to be devoted to God as you go through life if you understand how to read the Bible better. Now, what I'm about to talk about, some of you know about it, but it's always a very useful reminder for some of you, I actually think this is going to be mind-blowing for you. And you're going to be like, oh my goodness, this makes all the sense in the world. Back in verse 3, Peter said that God's divine power has given us all things or everything we need that pertain to life and godliness. So, so God has given, when you put your trust in Jesus, he's deposited in you all things. All things. Now, they have to be developed. But it's in there, in you. You could even say the potential's in there for you. You have everything that you need that pertain to life, to live this life, and to godliness, to live in the constant awareness of God as you go through this life. Now, this is classic New Testament. We are called, we are commanded to live out something God has already given to us. Can I, let me say that again. I don't want to go too fast. It's classic Bible. Think of this when you're reading the Bible. Think of when you're reading something, you're saying, is that something God is giving to me or is that something God is telling me how to live? So we are called... We are commanded to live out something God has already given to us. Now, if you're somewhat familiar with the letters of the apostles, of the epistles, we're, this is one of those we're reading right now, a lot of times, particularly in the apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament letters, you will hear something like this. Usually in the first half, 
is doctrine, and the second half is Christian living. Let me put it into the language I just put in. The first half is what God has done for us. The second half is how we live in light of what? What God has done for us. It's always what God has done first followed by what we do. Now, sometimes if you start reading some Bible material, you'll come across two very interesting words, and it is the word indicative and imperative. I'm going to take a second to write that down. Indicative and imperative. So what, is, what, is, what do those words mean? What God has done for us and who we are in Christ is called the indicative. How we live in response to that is called the imperative. So let me just simplify. Let me t- I try to use memory tools for stuff, and this is how I remember it. The indicative indicates what God has done for me. That's how I remember that. And once he has indicated what he has done for me, it then becomes imperative for me to live a certain way. And so God does stuff for us. He's done stuff in us through Jesus Christ. He's done it for us and who we are in Jesus that indicates where indicates what God has done. Therefore, it is imperative how we live in response. Let me give you an example. In Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul is unpacking for us the indicative. And he's saying to us, he's telling us that everyone who has turned to God, they're living, going this way, away from God, living their own thing, doing their own thing, and they turn to God, that's called believing, okay, or, or trusting, repenting really is what it's called. They repent, they turn to God, and then they trust or they believe, they put their trust in Jesus Christ. That is that those people have salvation, okay? That is a fact. God has saved such people. They, they heard the good news of Jesus dying on the cross in their place for their sins. They turned, they responded. That's a fact. They re, that's an indicative. They, retur- they responded by turning to God, putting their trust in Jesus Christ, and they are already in Jesus Christ now. That's a fact. After that, the Apostle Paul gives us the imperative. We might call it God's command and our practical effort in response to what God has done for us. He sent his son to die on the cross. He called us to faith. He adopted, he forgave our sins. He adopted us as children. How then are we to live in light of that? Romans chapter 6, verse 12 and 13. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. You, don't, you no longer are under the power of sin. You no longer have to give in to every single inclination that you have. Verse 13, and do not present your members. What does that mean? It means any part of yourself as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members or any part of yourself as instruments of righteousness to God. So once again, there's the tension. Christ has given us everything we need to be godly, but as we just read in Romans 12, we must pursue godliness. He's given us everything that we need to pursue it, but we have to pursue it. In simple terms, God has given us what we need to live a life that pleases him, 
And it is then on our part with our best effort with God's help to live a life that pleases God in the routine of life, in the times of trial, in times of pressure, in times of suffering. Now, this is probably not, this may be news to some of you. I understand that. And it's hard for me, you know, I, I want to go uh, slow enough to get you to understand, but we can't be here all night. But this is very different than the theology of many people that we know that would call themselves Christian. For instance, a lot of people say, I just let go and let God. I always say to people who say that, could you explain to me what that means? I don't really know what that means. Well, you know, just God does everything. Really? That's not what Jesus taught. Or others say this, no, 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 you're, you're wrong, you're wrong. God helps those who help themselves. I always say to people when they say that, I go, really, do you know where that is in the Bible? Oh, it's in there. Really, could you show me where that is? Could you show me where that is? I would call that lazy theology. That's people who really, you know, and I'm not trying to be mean, but, and a lot of them, it's the environment they grew up in. I understand that. But now it's time, now you're learning these things. It's time not to be lazy with your theology. It's time to get into the Word of God, get the Word of God into you. Now, remember we said last time that Peter is a task theologian. He is performing a task. He's making sure everybody who's reading this letter, that would include us, knows that it's important to keep the tension and the order correct. What God does first is important, then we respond. But we must keep them in tension. We must not expect, we must not try to do God's part. Well, I'm doing all I can do to go to heaven. Nope. Nope. I say to people sometimes, um, are you a Christian? And they go, well, I'm trying. Sorry, you're not a Christian then. You don't try to be a Christian. God makes you one. That's his part. And then our part is to do our best with his help to live it out. First uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10 says this, but you are a chosen generation. If you're a follower of Jesus, a royal priesthood. Did you know that if you're a follower of Jesus, you're a royal priesthood? A holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. It's a wonderful thing. Verse 10. Who were once not a people but are now the people of God, being called out of the darkness into the light. By turning to God, putting your trust in Jesus, you are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy but have now obtained mercy. What's mercy? We don't get what we deserve, but that, that's it. So you might say that. That is the indicative. That is what God has done. He has made you a chosen generation. He's made our church a chosen generation. We are a people, a royal priesthood, or sometimes called the priesthood of all believers, a holy nation, his special people who proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his light. We were not his people, but we are now his people. We had not obtained mercy, but now we have obtained mercy. God did all of that. We did none of it. We did none of it. But what do we do? What's imperative that we do? He tells us in verse 11, Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. In light of the wonderful things that we, God has done for us, we are now empowered to live for God. Now, this pattern is consistent throughout the New Testament. What do we mean by the New Testament? The teaching of Jesus and the apostles. Explain, and, it, and it explains why, and, and 
If it scares you a little, it's actually probably a good thing. I'm not deliberately trying to scare you, but it explains why counting on being a good person is dangerous. Because we learned in the book of James, the standard of heaven is not good. It is perfection. So somebody has to give you their perfection, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. It explains why the apostles preach Christ before they preach behavior. That's why I make every effort I can to spend more time preaching Christ than preaching behavior. It also seems to me the reason the church is so weak is so much how-to preaching. How to do this, how to do that, because what does it do? It puts all the emphasis on what? You over here. It's, it's do this. You do one, you do three, you do four, you do five, and, and that's going to be good enough. And people are like, it doesn't work. Why? Because being, without being told what God has done for you and God is doing in you, you do not have the power to live these things. Why? Because we're driven by our flesh, but when, when God empowers us, we're driven by his spirit. So instead, the apostles show us the love and the work of Jesus Christ, which does what? It draws our affections to Jesus, and then we live lives out of gratitude to Jesus. So we say no to those, so, so some of these things that are evil because we're like, that's not who I am. I'm not, Jesus died for me. I'm not going to do that. That, that, that. No way. Verse 7. To godliness, brotherly kindness. So now he, he, he kind of moves into human relationships. So brotherly kindness. Philadelphia. All the people from South Jersey. Yeah. Some versions say affection. To brotherly kindness, love, and that is the word agape. Now, I'm not going to get into the meanings of the different types of love because probably more than others might. Um, I'm not alone in this. I think there's a lot more overlap than people think. Uh, brotherly kindness is a love between believers. It is the family devotion that we have to one another. It is the idea that we are brothers and sisters. This is a very important point. Godliness can't exist without brotherly kindness. It just can't. Brotherly kindness is faith expressing itself in and through love, in kindness, in generosity, in, in, in courtesy. Once again, the word here is Philadelphia. Now, I don't know how many of you have been to Philadelphia, but they call it the city of brotherly love. Do you, do you, some of you, there's already guys in the sound booth shaking their head. They're like, I don't know about that. Now, I, I am a native New Yorker, so I can tell you not a lot of love between New York and Philadelphia, but that's okay. My college roommates were all from South Jersey. They consider themselves Philadelphia guys, so we, we were able to find some common ground there. But, but you know, a lot of times... Well, you know, when the sports are on, you can't, you can't feel the love, that's for sure. Um, but seriously, I think, again, Peter's moved us from our relationship with God, which is our primary relationship, to how our relationship is lived out with people in the family of God, with our brothers and sisters. In 1 Thessalonians 4, the Apostle Paul told the Thessalonians and the church to love the brothers and sisters, to love the brothers more and more. So our love for one another should be growing, not decreasing. First Peter chapter 1, that we are to have a, he says, we are to have a sincere love for your brothers. That would include your sisters as well. And it seems to me that brotherly kindness right now is something the church really is struggling for because marketing, advertising, 
the internet has really, really put this into hyperdrive is geared towards what's best for me. That's how so many people lead their lives. What is best for them? And the, that's being discipled by the culture. And the more you are discipled by the culture and not the word of God, I'm not even sure how many people see their lack of love. That really, and I'm not just talking about, listen, we all get grumpy and, you know, we're all from different parts of the country and different parts of the world, so people talk to each other differently. I, I, I understand that. But I, sometimes I don't think people see just how incredibly selfish they are. Now, we talk about love. It's not just talking about going around hugging people. When, when, he's, when he's talking about brotherly kindness and love, he's talking about living the cross-centered life. He's talking about living your life the way Jesus did. Giving of your life, giving of yourself to others, not just doing what works out best for you. I'm going to say it again. Godliness can't exist without brotherly kindness. Godliness can't exist and brotherly kindness can't exist without faith expressing itself in love, in generosity. It just can't. 1 John 3.16, he says this, John says, By this we know love, because he, talking about Jesus, laid down his life for us. What is that? You should know by now. That's the indicative. That's what God did for us. Jesus laid down his life for us. And here's the imperative. Here's what we are to do in light of what Jesus did for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now, this is vital to growth in the Christian life. And if you don't desire to live the cross-centered life, if you don't desire to at times say, you know what, I'm going to do what's best for the other person, or we're going to let that person do what's best for them. If you're not doing that, and, and we're going to talk for a few minutes to some things that's maybe not going to like too much, but you're not growing in the Christian life. You're not. Romans 12.10 says, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another. Another version says, Outdo one another in showing honor. Another version puts it this way, Honor one another above yourselves. Amen, Pastor Jim. Some of you are like, amen, Pastor Jim. Way to go, way to go. Okay, fine. Let me just warn you right now, if you were thinking about getting a glass of water, might be a good time to go now. If you were, if you were thinking about, you know, maybe you want to get up and stretch your legs or something like that or grab some pretzels or something like that, I know you're eating during Wednesday night Bible study. Um, you might want to go now because I think just for a couple minutes, it's got to get a little hot in the kitchen. Have you ever heard yourself saying something like this? Well, the church should do something about that. Well, a robust biblical theology knows that you are the church, that I am the church, not because I'm the pastor, but because I'm a follower of Jesus. We are all the church. And if we're standing around waiting for somebody to do something, guess what? Not much is going to get done. Maybe you've heard yourself say this. And if you have kids, remember the little ears are listening. Should we go to church tomorrow? Or should I go to church tomorrow? I've said this before. Somebody said to my oldest son, Ryan, when we first got up here and we first started the church, somebody said to him, well, it must be hard for you. You have to go to, you have to, go to church every week now. And he goes, it's always been that way ever since I was born. Nothing's changed. We might be here a little bit longer. But nothing, nothing's, nothing's changed. Or maybe you've heard yourself saying this. Hey, 
which church do you want to go to tomorrow? Which church do you want to go to tomorrow? Or maybe you're thinking on a given night, eh, should I go to my community group? Really? Eh, I'm not so sure I feel like it. Or I'm not sure, I think I'm going to do this. Let me ask you a question. When you leave a church and people leave churches, do you consider those you leave behind? I'm pausing right now because I am very hard-pressed to think of people who do. There are some, but there are not many. Not many. Did you think that maybe you left a ministry in a bind? Did that, did that even go on your radar? Or was it all about you? That's not the cross-centered life. Did you think about the people you leave behind in your community group? Like, was so-and-so? What happened? Did you leave without saying anything? Oh, 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 no, 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 no. I sent an email. I th honestly, I think it's worse. I think an email's worse than not saying anything. It, it really says a lot to people about what you think about them. Now, we left churches, obviously, to get to here. And we had one or two meetings that weren't, you know, we, we, one, you know, we moved one time and then we had a meeting with a pastor and, you know, we, were, we weren't sure what we wanted to do. And it, it was hard. It was hard. I felt bad for him. He's a good man. Good man. It's really hard. And he said, listen, I have people come to me and they give me plenty of reasons. You're the first person that's come to me that's given me a real decent reason. And it was nothing that was wrong with him or the church. Nothing at all. I just sensed a real heavy, heavy calling to go to Calvary Chapel Old Bridge. Now I know why. I didn't at the time. And he helped guide me through that decision through some different events. When you leave without saying anything, did you ever think that you are actually sticking other people with making an excuse for you? Is that the cross-centered life? Now, I'm not saying people don't leave churches. There are some churches you should leave. Really, there are. But the way you leave shows your love for the people in the church. Let me say that again. The way you leave says a lot about your love for the people in the church. And here's the thing. When, when people see brotherly love in action, it is attractive and it is evangelistic, but it starts with you. But it starts with you. Selfless laying down your life for your brothers and sisters is a distinguishing mark of a true disciple. It's a distinguishing mark. Jesus said this at the Last Supper, John 15, 12 through 14. This is my commandment. What is he saying to the guys? He's got the apostles in a room. He goes, guys, you've got to do this. You have got to do this. You can't miss it. That you love one another as I have loved you. He got on the cross for us. He says, that's how I want you to love. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. And then listen to what he says. So what was his commandment? That you love one another as I have loved you. What's great love? To lay down your life for his friends. What does he say? Then verse 14. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. If you love one another, you're my friend. If it's all about you, I know this is scary. Jesus is saying, you're really not my friend. 
Verse 7, Peter ends to brotherly kindness, love. Godly people abound in selfless love. It is an evidence of faith. Uh, right now, there's, we're, you're all online. There's guys in the sound booth. You can't see them. I can. But you know what they're doing right now? They're loving you. They're serving God, and they're loving you. That, that's what they're doing. The, the love of God towards other followers of Jesus is the glue that holds the list of this responsibilities together. Love holds all of these things God is telling us to, to develop in our lives together. So important. To truly love God is to set your affections on the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and reflect the love of God to the world. Jesus said the two most commandments, most important commandments were, right? To love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Next week, we'll talk about a productive and fruitful faith that grows out of these character traits. And this is so important to what we talked about Sunday, the mission of God. I know it's late. This is such an important concept. People see God's love when they see it in God's people. Let me say that again. People see God's love when they see it in God's people. Before you lose hope, remember that followers of Jesus have been given what we need by God's divine power, verse 3. And in verse 4, again, we are partakers of the divine nature. In other words, our efforts to live for God are empowered by Christ living in us. Not to mention, since Christ has given all followers of Jesus all we need for life and for godliness. We just need to grow in these things. These are the facts that provide the motivation. Most of all, it all starts with Jesus, not us. He provides us the motivation to what? To live for him. It starts with Jesus. He desires the highest good for you and for me. And Jesus loved us so much, he demonstrated that to us. The scripture says, and while we were yet sinners, or while we were still sinners, he didn't wait till we got our act together. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is the love of of God for you, the divine love of God for you. And if you don't have it, it can be yours if you simply put your trust in him today. Ask Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and he will come to live in and through you. And he will deposit these traits in you, and he will begin to develop them in you. And your life will be a life that is pleasing to God. It can. It really, really can. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. Jesus will take you in, and he will make you more like him. It's a process, and your life can be pleasing to God. Well, let's pray.